Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. For anyone who wants to make money and make a difference, grow and leverage your enterprise better, get more done in less time, outsource everything and create your ideal lifestyle. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. This is episode seven and it's Rob Moore here. Thanks for tuning in. The topic of this episode seven is what does being disruptive mean? What is disruptive? This podcast is called the Disruptive Entrepreneur and the word disruptive is very commonplace now in business, startups, tech, Silicon Valley. It's almost now, in many industries, kind of fashionable to be disruptive, but no point shouting for the sake of it and just uh, having false promises or being controversial just for the sake of being controversial. So in your business, whether you're a startup, an existing growing business, or you have a monopoly, or you're an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur, or an employee, what does being disruptive mean? So what I think disruptive isn't is change for the sake of it. There is no point shaking things up that are working. And I see many people in business always trying to tweak and change and and always wanting to challenge the way things are done, even though things might be working already. So change for the sake of change, all it really does is break things. So it's not like you should be addicted to change. It's just you should understand when to change, when to kind of go for a, a monopolistic business or industry, uh, and, and when to be controversial and when not to be controversial. It's also not completely ripping things to bits, whether that's your business model or other people. It's not being aggressive. It's not just trying to attack and challenge and break stuff for the sake of it, because I think that it can, it can become a bit of a trend to just constantly disrupt, change, break, without really thinking about why you're doing it or if this is towards your long-term vision, strategy and legacy. So I think that if you're going to be disruptive, if you're going to challenge the way things are done, you're going to be contrarian, you're going to look at uh, the, the way things are in a new way. You've got to do it in a very calculated, strategic way. You've got to do it with a vision in mind. Understand how you make a difference on the planet. Pick your fights wisely. That's very important. Uh, Richard Branson and with his airlines would <laughs> certainly tell you that was a, a big battle that maybe retrospectively wouldn't go back to. But at the same time, people like Richard Branson and, and other very famous entrepreneurs have almost built their whole billion pound, multi-billion dollar empire, their brand and their reputation on being disruptive, on on challenging monopolies, on challenging the way things have always been done and looking at if you can do it quicker, faster, cheaper and better. So really what disruption is, is constant innovation. And again, innovation for the sake of it, all it's going to do is cost you money and increase your overhead. Innovation can doesn't necessarily have to be something that's brand new because sometimes things can come too early. I think Seth Godin calls it the early adopters, uh, the people who are always at the forefront of change. Now, that's risky in a lot of ways. In fact, it's not always the best thing to do in business because if, you, if you're too early with something, I mean, if you'd have discovered the internet in 1852, you know, you'd have been a bit too early there. And uh, many technologies, when they first come out, they're too early and people don't embrace them straight away because they're not ready for them. In fact, uh, many of the innovations that Apple undertook were actually just 
reinventions or they were taking something that already existed, like the mouse or the touchscreen, and they were just the phone. You know, I mean, that's just they, they, they're taking something that's already there, but they're making it better, maybe making it more user friendly. They're making it easier for you, le- you know, less complicated. Maybe it, it, it solves problems for you quicker. And uh, that's really what I th- see innovation as. Innovation is not constant and dramatic change. And in the property world, finance is changing all the time. If you raise finance in your business, then you'll know that finance is changing all the time. The interest rates are changing all the time. The policy of the governments, you know, the Fed or the Bank of England, they're changing all the time. And uh, so the way that you invest does evolve. And 10 years ago, we were getting most of our mortgages from one particular lender where you could match the lender up with a bridging loan and really minimize your input of cash. Then that lender was kind of forced to stop lending through the, the recession and the crash. And, and, and then you have to evolve your strategy because you can't use that lender anymore. And you know that you'd got used to that lender applying for the loan was easy, getting accepted was easy. You didn't really need any proof of income. You could do self-cert mortgages, all that kind of stuff. No docs, as they call them in America and Australia. But then, you know, you kind of have to evolve because you have to look at finance a different way. And now crowdfunding or raising property from angels and property angels, uh, joint ventures with kind of, you know, private investors money. They're, they're, that's probably a more sustainable way to finance now than those old mortgage lenders who aren't really in the market anymore or want you to put in a huge deposit. And that didn't happen overnight, but, you know, you have to follow the trends of the marketplace and look at how you can change. And, and sometimes being the first isn't the best. Sometimes you want to watch that crash chest test dummy, go and do it and try it. You don't need to be the first. When you're the first, no one really knows you. Maybe you need to be the second or the third and improve upon you know, the way that the, the first do it. So that's what innovation is. Innovation isn't always as dramatic or as disruptive or as quick as people think. It's often a day-by-day, relatively slow evolutionary process of just wanting to become better, wanting to serve more people, wanting to solve problems, caring about your marketplace, your your model, your brand, and constantly looking to move. There's a there's a strategy in the UK which is called rent to rent in property, which is essentially you rent from a a landlord and then you re-rent out the rooms. So you're almost like an agent in the middle between the landlord who's who's got the property and you're renting off them on a single let basis. And then you're renting out the rooms one by one on a multi-let basis. Now that's that's an innovation. You know, people, I mean, yes, the odd few were doing it 10 years ago. It was called corporate lets or other other names, but really not really very many people were doing it. And the, the odd few were kind of making it work and it kind of it only really grew in popularity and the ability for the sort of what you might call the lay person entrepreneur to be able to do this strategy uh, when the bank stopped lending and liquidity became much harder from the conventional way you had to find cash flow and liquidity in other ways in what you might call more disruptive ways and really what rent to rent is is a solution to a lack of liquidity from banks and that i believe is what being disruptive is it's embracing evolution of your business and your business model and your niche because as you'll know if you don't evolve your business model uh, then your business will die out. Rolls-Royce became a car manufacturer when you know the, their ability to build aircraft engines, you know, maybe their ability to scale that business model slowed down. And uh, the post-it note was, was an accident. It was just a failed glue on a piece of paper that wouldn't stick properly. And someone somewhere had the open-mindedness and the vision to say, wait a minute, that, that could solve another problem. 
and many disruptions or innovations are pure accident. And so I suppose it's being open-minded, have, you know, because when you have this longer term vision of what you want to achieve and you want to continually serve humanity and solve problems for your customers and clients, then you'll see more opportunities in disruption than you would if you didn't. So disruption is innovation. It's not changing for the sake of it or changing too fast, but evolving, changing through evolution. It's reinvention. It's taking something that you think works, but isn't done very well, or something that you think is amazing, but actually the competitors are doing a really bad job of getting it to the market or, or packaging it. And, and that's another way you can really evolve your disruption. Uh, Richard Branson went for Sky, didn't he? He went for Sky TV when he created a, um, his, kind of, his broadband and his, his TV facilities. And I think he felt that Sky was a bit of a monopoly. And I think he maybe thought he could do it better, faster, cheaper. And um, to a certain degree, he would have taken a lot of that market share. Whether you could say he dethroned Sky and Rupert Murdoch is a, is a different question. But if you see something in your niche or your industry on another niche that you think that could be such a great service, but it's not being done very well. I mean, really, that's what uh, Dyson did, didn't he, with the Hoover I don't believe that he was the first person to design bagless Hoovers or have his patented technology. I think probably a lot of what Dyson, the company, and Richard don't do well is marketing and, and kind of getting the message across to you of how they innovate. But really, all they did was took something that everyone knew how to do and uh, improved it. You know, having a bag in a Hoover is a pain. Um, I'm sure you're leveraging out the hoovering of your house, by the way, so I'm sure you don't know it yourself, but you can all remember the time in the old days where you opened the bag and the, the, <laughs> the dust and the dirt and the dog hair just went all over the place. And that wasn't, that wasn't like amazing groundbreaking technology. It was just a, a better solution to a problem. And what Dyson managed to do is change your expectations of how much you'd pay for a vacuum cleaner. And actually, if you think about it, Hoover had a monopoly because people, certainly in the UK, I don't know about America and overseas, but certainly in the UK, most people in the UK called a vacuum cleaner a Hoover. Now, a Hoover isn't a vacuum cleaner. It's a name of a company. And they didn't just produce Hoovers, but they had this monopoly. And Dyson improved on how you could use that technology and make your life a little bit easier. And it, you know, it played to your emotions of, hey, look how cool I look with my Dyson and, and probably doubled or tripled what people would in their mind believe they would pay for a, uh, for, a, for a vacuum cleaner. So that's another way of disrupting is looking at how you can improve something that you don't think is being done very well by your competitors. You could revitalize something. Maybe you've got a mothballed model or part of your business. Maybe you think you can bring something back to life, inject it with, you know, maybe new brand values or new marketing. We did that at Progressive. We had an, an online academy in 2010, a membership site where we were delivering a lot of information for just a small monthly subscription. And uh, we had many thousands of users, which in the small niche of property investing was pretty good. And, and we kind of mothballed it because keeping the content up to date was quite a, a challenging thing and needed like five or 10 full-time staff just to do that. And then we, we kind of, we phoenixed it, if you like. We brought it back from the ashes uh, in 2015. Uh, we reduced the price slightly because we thought, well, maybe we can scale more and maybe there'll be a higher perceived value. We actually reduced the price by one third. But within, what, a month of launch, we overtook the highest number we had 
having marketed it for three or four years. So all we really did was took something that mothballed, made it better and brought it back to the market in a, in a different time. Now, when we created our online membership subscription site for property investors, a lot of people copycatted it and, and pretty much everyone in our niche at the time, they copycatted it and they had their own membership site. So there was like loads of competition. And then, and then it all kind of died down when Facebook became prevalent. You could, there was a lot, there was groups everywhere on Facebook and social media. Uh, but you know, we felt maybe we could bring this back to life. The competitors have, got, have kind of gone now in this space. There's a few, but they're just private and small scale. And so you could bring something back to life that you've got in your model. Or, or, or you, could, you could take a dying business, you could buy a company that's, uh, you know, not trading very well, and you can inject marketing and brand values and culture into it, just slightly tweak the way that, you know, that, that it's presented as a business model. And, and that can be a disruption in your industry or in your niche. I also think that disrupt, being disruptive or disruption is, is disruption of the self. Now, I'm sure you desire comfort. We all do as human beings. It's ironic that according to Maslow in his hierarchy of needs, certainty and variety are, are, are two of our inherent needs as a human being. And certainty is comfort and variety is discomfort. And it's ironic that we need both. So you've probably had moments in your life where you just want peace. You know, you just want things to work. You don't want to have to work too hard. You just want the passive income from your assets and your business. And you don't want constant challenges all the time and problems. You know, you want the world to leave you alone. But then when you do, you get that or you achieve that, if you ever do, if you've ever sold a business or retired, I retired in my 20s for a month, hated it because then you're bored and you need a challenge. Then you need to grow. If you're not green, you grow. If you're, wait a minute, get the, get, the, get the quote right. If you're green, you grow, you're ripe, you're rot. And uh, so if you're not growing, you're dying. So you've got this fine balance, this dichotomy, haven't you, between wanting this kind of comfort, but desiring a growth, change, innovation. And I think if you're an entrepreneur and you're kind of a, you're like an addicted entrepreneur and, you know, you always want to make a difference and grow and you love starting new businesses and, you you know, you love creating things and bringing products to market and, you, know, you, want to, you want to change the world and you want to leave your lasting legacy and make a difference and make loads of money and all the things that you want, a lot of the time you need to keep growing. You need to grow through yourself, push yourself. And so often what disruption is, or being a disruptive entrepreneur, is challenging your own beliefs and challenging when you've become comfortable or bored or you've lack, you lack motivation or inspiration. And uh, I, seem to, I seem to have that addiction, you might call it a curse, where just when I've got everything sorted and, uh, you know, everything is what you might call comfortable, I make this decision to start, start up a new model or bring a new product or something like that. And I, I, I've been doing it long enough now that I'm, I've got this like parallel universe thinking where part of me goes, Rob, you've got everything just how you want. You know, you don't need any more love. You don't need any more customers. You don't need any more money. You make your tens of millions. Just, just. And then the other part of me, you, go, but you, you need something new. You need exciting. You need the drive and passion. You know, I do need more love. I do need more customers. I do need more money. And uh, I, I know when I'm making a decision, the, the the kind of disruption and mess and pain and noise and that I'm creating and what all the my team are going to think about it. But you know, that's part of being the, the a disruptive entrepreneur. It's part of getting up today, knowing that life's going to be different, exciting, and not the same as yesterday, or even worse, not less than yesterday. So how can you constantly challenge yourself? How can you grow as a person? How can you have a better mindset? How can you uh, have, uh, make sure that your values are, are both equally beneficial to you and the planet? How can you make sure that you're living your core values and growing to make a bigger difference to your family, 
to the, the, the person that you're supposed to become, you know, the legacy that you're supposed to leave. leave. So, uh, you know, maybe every now and again, you need to challenge yourself. You need to disrupt the way you've done things. You need to have a bit of self-honesty and, uh, and look at if you can do things better, different, faster. And uh, the, the, the exciting thing for me about disruption of the self is that uh, there's no boredom there. There's no, you know, you, you, you always feel like you can do more and give more. And therefore, you, you feel very, mu- very much uh, an ongoing fulfillment and uh, your, your self-worth increases, which I think is really important. Okay, so being disruptive is also about taking calculated risks. I think a lot of people think being disruptive is going and attacking the giants or the monopolies in your industry. And it's almost like cool to, you know, kind of feed off the bigger fish. I think you must be calculated in your risks. You must be, you must pick your fights wisely and you must disrupt industries very much strategically. And Richard Branson is famous for saying that, yeah, it looks like he's risky, but he always protects the downside. He did a deal with his airline where he could uh, basically give the airplanes back uh, when he first got them, you know, if the business didn't work, which obviously is a massively important thing when airplane, the aircraft might cost hundreds of millions or billions. So you, when, you, when you disrupt and innovate, de-risk as much as you can first. You know, don't spend your life savings on setting up your new business model where the, where the results aren't proven. Don't, don't go for big companies and, and risk lawsuits where they've got more cash than you and could just bleed you dry. And don't go into industries too early. Make sure you uh, do a lot more, do some market research, survey your customers, make sure that you know that the marketplace and your customers want what you've got or how you're packaging it before you jump in two feet and waste your time and your money on, you know, being noisy and controversial for the sake of it. Another way of being disruptive is going for a monopolistic industry. Now, Of course, there are anti-competition and uh, anti-monopoly laws uh, that are in play at the moment. But really, there's ways and means for the biggest companies in the world to create glorified monopolies. And none of them are ever going to admit that they are. But, you know, that deal that Bill Gates did with, um, I think it was HP initially, where every computer had to run his software. You know, in a way, he created almost a monopoly there. Intel did the same thing. And, uh, you know, that's just smart business. I'm certainly not saying that that's bad. If you're smart in business, smart business, you deserve what you get. But, you know, huge companies who've got these monopolies, the upside to them is they have the control and power, but very often they become kind of inflexible and immovable. And I think that's often your strategic advantage as a startup is that you can be flexible to change. You can change your business model. You haven't got all these layers of management and hierarchy where it takes 22 years for a decision to go through all the ranks and you have to have meetings on meetings on meetings. I remember when we first started Progressive in 2006 and seven. I remember that we wanted to do something, made the decision. We did that that day. We set it up that day. We put it to market the next day. And I kind of, in a way, look back on that a little bit with uh, reminiscing a little bit because now at Progressive, sometimes it can take weeks or months. We have um, marketing plans years in advance and event plans a, a year in advance. And sometimes I think, well, the time is now we've got to do this. And uh, I have to go to my own MD. I mean, I own the business and I have to go to my own MD almost to, like get permission. And sometimes that can be frustrating as an entrepreneur. And, and that's, they're, they're the challenges that the big companies the corporations and the monopolies have. And therefore, you as a smaller disruptive entrepreneur and having a disruptive model, you have an advantage over that. You're flexible, you can move, you can change, you can make decisions, you can get it to market quick. 
And that can be your huge advantage. So you don't always have to see being a startup uh, as, as a, you know, a, a difficulty. They call it lean, don't they, in business? You know, lean isn't just about having low overhead. Lean is about being flexible to change and industry innovation. And often some of the innovations come from some of the smaller companies because they're fresh. They have a, a new funky culture where people are excited to work for them and they, they work for them because they want to make a difference, not just because they want to get a paycheck. And that's the advantage you have when you're a, a startup disrupt, disruptive entrepreneur. I remember when we started Progressive back in 2006 stroke seven, we incorporated Jan 2007. We were already setting up the business in 2006. And I remember looking at all the other people in the marketplace that were running property investment training. And it was like, it it was like there were a caricature, you know, the owners of all the companies. Uh, They they were of one uh, race or ethnicity often. Uh, they would wear like a, a cheap looking gray suit with a white shirt that was had one button undone. And, and it was like they were just all clones. And uh, so I dressed Mark and I up in kind of maybe more tailored looking suits. If you do watch suits, the, the series, you know, we like to tailor ourselves nicely with bespoke suits. We'd have these very stripy shirts and, uh, you know, we weren't everyone's flavor. I get that, but we were more memorable and, and we didn't even need to say anything about these other competitors. We weren't attacking anyone. We were just so different in the way that we did things that we got attention. Now, of course, attention is nothing without interest and desire, uh, but we got attention and that's the hardest part often. And, you know, we made a lot of noise because of that, because we were, we were just being disruptive in the way that we built our brand and our culture and the way that we spoke and uh, the way that we ran our operations. And we attracted a much younger marketplace than our competitors. And we, 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 we won over a lot of uh, customers very quickly. Now, of course, you have to back that up, don't you? And we had, what, 20 properties in our first year, then we had 50 in our second year. By the time we're in our third year, you know, we probably had nearly 100 properties in our portfolio. And of course, then we, all, we had all the credibility, but we got that head start. So how can you be different, fresh? Uh, how can you gain more attention in your marketplace? Richard Branson, with all his publicity stunts, is dressing up as women and doing a hot air balloon adventure world records and that kind of thing. How can you do that? We, I broke uh, two world records for the longest ever public speech. My um, fiance reminds me that I didn't win the world record for listening. Uh, and so that was just somewhere where you can get a little bit more publicity and noise in your industry. Uh, how can you do that? How can you not just disrupt the model, but disrupt the marketing, disrupt the brand, disrupt the culture? How can you be unique? Now, don't be different for the sake of being different, but how can you be unique? What space does someone not fill that you can fill and you can own? And once you own that niche and you have this clear identity, this clear brand, then people will uh, be raving fans of you. They'll support you. They'll share your work and your business will grow that way. So have a look at your niche and industry, excuse me, and look how it's become tired, boring, samey, and look at how you can disrupt and be different and innovative. Pause for one second. I'm going to stay live because I don't want to edit this, but pause for one second. Okay, here I am back again. Contrarianism, I think, is often uh, what being a disruptive entrepreneur is. It's if you do what you've always done, you'll get what you've always got. And uh, if you do what the masses do, you'll get what the masses get. So how can you look at a contrarian way of approaching a problem? 
Now, if you study, for example, Warren Buffett, George Soros, you'll realize that their investing strategies are pretty much the opposite of what the masses do. In property, uh, most people, when the market's rising, buying, and then when the market is falling, they're selling. But on a very simplistic level, that should be the opposite. And in your niche in industry, the masses probably do things what they believe is the common sense way, but it's actually the wrong way. And the successful people are often the most contrarian, you know, that they realize that to get extraordinary results, you have to do things a different way, the non-standard way, the unknown way, the, the way of, of the secrets. So what is it in your industry or niche that's, that, that the top few know that, that the masses don't? Can you interview the top people in your industry and find out what they know and, and kind of a role model their answers? Do you know them already? How can you comment on social media and on your blogs and in your marketing messages such that the information you give is contrarian, it's different, it, it attacks convention? If you can do that in your media messages, you will attract more fans and followings. You'll own a space that no one owns and you, you'll get yourself naturally positioned near the top. Just like, um, I think it was Walt Disney who said, observe the masses, do the opposite. One of my mentors, James Carney, he uses that quote a lot, observe the masses, do the opposite. And if you want to be successful, because of the, because of the reality is from the 80-20 principle, most people on the planet aren't successful. So if you follow what most people on the planet do, you won't be successful. You'll get what they've got. So you have to do what, uns, uh, you have to do what um, successful people do, what the minority of people do. You know, for, you know, around money, there's so much free, bad advice Around money, people say money doesn't buy happiness. It does. People say that money is the root of all evil. It isn't. You know, people, you know, and, and all of this information and this advice is from poor people and unhappy people. So make sure that you're getting deep, contrarian knowledge in your niche or your industry that you're in or you're going to, uh, because I think that will give you this disruptive advantage. Can you... Take what the biggest commentator or influencer in your niche is doing or commentating on, and can you elegantly challenge that or or kind of perch onto that? I remember when uh, the Conservatives were were being won in in the UK, and um, the mayor, the mayor of London at the time, Boris Johnson, was commenting on some of the policy. And Mark Homer, my business partner at Progressive, went on and commented on some of Boris's work. And he had a good exchange with Boris. And he got hundreds of shares, thousands of likes and comments. And uh, it was kind of by accident, but it was a really clever thing. And really what, what Mark ended up doing was leveraging some commentary from the mayor of London. So how can you leverage what the top influencers, the top disruptors are doing in your niche also, what you could do is you could elegantly challenge them. So that they comment on a way of doing things. You could elegantly challenge the way they do things. Never get into an argument or, or a heated debate or show any emotion. That's not the point of it. Be respectful, but maybe challenge what some of the experts are saying in your industry, and that can elevate your position as a disruptive entrepreneur. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed episode seven of What is Being Disruptive? Please do leave a review for my podcast and share it with anyone that you think could really benefit. I want to help as many people as I can across the globe to become financially free, to make lots of money and give back and create more economy for themselves and others. And also please uh, do go and comment on my Facebook page, which is Rob Moore Progressive. Or if you want to interact with me on Facebook or Twitter, my Twitter page is Rob Progressive. 
And um, if you've got any questions or if you've got any suggestions of what you'd like me to teach you as being an entrepreneur and an investor and a business owner and someone who wants to make more money and make a difference, please message me. Thank you. 